You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Folks, welcome back to the program. I hope everyone had a safe and sound and relaxing Thanksgiving, followed by a uh, much violent Black Friday and uh, hopefully a calmer Cyber Monday. Uh, I usually go ahead and try and get a lot of my stuff done way beforehand. So as soon as November comes around, I've already got gifts and everything already set. So I can just watch the calamity ensue throughout the next month and a half. But if you're looking for a good book for either yourself or a loved one, somebody that wants something not necessarily political, but something that's going to make them think, something that's actually going to go ahead and teach them a thing or two, I want to go ahead and recommend to you my friend Logan Albright's newest book, Conform or Be Cast Out, The Literal Demonization of Nonconformists. And we've got Logan on the show today to talk about this and more. Uh, Logan, I've got to go ahead and give you some credit. Usually I thought I was the only one who would include the devil in my books, but you literally put him on the cover. Yeah, I thought it was a good illustration. I mean, I have a chapter in my book about Paradise Lost, and it's like Paradise Lost, from Milton's point of view, portrays, uh, particularly in the first book of it, it portrays the devil as someone who is uh, escaping authority in order for a life that is less easy, but which is more free. And I think it's a good metaphor for the kind of nonconformists that I'm talking about in this book, people who want to do things differently, want to do things their own way, don't want to submit to the established order, and who maybe have a hard time of it because of it. Which And people in this book have an especially hard time of it because of it. Yeah, and your, your, your book's theme overall is basically how large societies and even sub-society subgroups will always find a way to somewhat ostracize and point out the differences of other people so that way they can somewhat cast them out of society or blame them for you know a, a tribe or a village's problems. There's always a scapegoat. And that's the big thing that you put throughout your book is there have been scapegoats in religion. When we look at religious texts throughout different cultures, there have been scapegoats throughout history, especially modern history. And even now, there will always be a way for societies to you know separate and segregate each other so that way they can always find somebody to pin the blame on, whether it's really their fault or not. And um, I, I mean, the, the one thing that I got from reading the first couple chapters of your book is I really had to separate out my own bias from the points you were trying to make. Um, the, the first chapter, especially, you, you just really jump into it. And I kind of want to focus on there for a second. You're, sure. you're taking the concept of the devil and you're not necessarily going for the ethical or moral arguments for why Lucifer, Satan, whatever you're doing is doing what they're doing, but you're taking what I would consider more of the literary devil approach, which isn't necessarily just, you know, 
the big bad guy who reigns in hell, but this idea of somebody that, you know, is, is resisting authority at all costs and what is the cost when you're cast out from that society, when you've resisted that authority. Yeah. Um, I am not a Christian myself, so I'm not an actual believer in the devil, but I, I find him fascinating as a literary character. And one of the things I do in that first chapter is kind of point out the archetypical nature of some of the aspects of Lucifer that we see in literature and portrayals of him. Um, I point out that he's very similar to the Greek myth of Prometheus, because Prometheus is a titan who brought fire to the human race against the wishes of the gods. And the fire is obviously a tool which can be used for good and which can be used for evil, but it gives humans some kind of self-determination over their lives. And for his transgression, Prometheus was horribly punished by the other gods for it. And I think that's a real parallel to the story of the Garden of Eden, where Satan tempts Eve with the tree of life, which, you know, or the tree of knowledge, rather, not the tree of life. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, it has its pluses and it has its minuses, but uh, fundamentally, it's about uh, humans kind of taking taking charge of their own destiny, taking responsibility for their own actions, taking the bad with the good, but realizing that a life and freedom is better than a life of comfortable servitude. And so I'm looking at that as sort of an archetypical literary figure that you see echoed in other uh, other types of stories as well, including Prometheus, which I've, has always been one of my favorites. As a libertarian, I just I love Prometheus because I think he's such a great example of kind of standing up to authority and saying, no, we're going to do it our own way, and maybe it's going to be dangerous, and maybe it's going to be hard, but you know, it's better to do it that way than to just you know be innocent children for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I, I did something similar with my last book, How Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. I, while, while the book has a lot of Christian symbolism and a lot of Christian messaging, because that's my worldview and that's the worldview I wanted to craft the story in, I, I use very much of the Felix Faust approach of the literary devil, this idea of the tempter, the jokester, the impersonator, mm-hmm. somebody who will look more like your immediate enemy in order to conceal their true intentions. That's why I have the character of Satan Nixon, because even though he looks devilish, you know, the the main character sees somebody who he really hates and he happens to really hate Richard Nixon. So with that, you know, I, I went with more of the historical literary trickster, more like Loki type figure in terms of who I was casting as my devil. But, um, you know, this has always been one of those strange things that I've, I've seen amongst libertarians. I see this amongst libertarian Christians. It's this, it's basically this parallel between where are you going to divide the secular and where are you going to divide your, you know, what I would call a spiritual and religious worldview. Because I, I, I remember reading Rules for Radicals for the first time many years ago, and that book is dedicated to the devil, the first rebel who resisted and won his own kingdom as a result. I, I'm paraphrasing Salinsky. But, um, you know, there's that approach where you have a lot of people who are very anti-authoritarian, who resist really any type of collective authority, and they almost see that as an inherent virtue every time. Now, as much of a rebel as I think I am in my own life, um, you know, when I look past the realm of politics, when I look past the realm of government, I would consider myself a pretty obedient and submissive person when looking at my, you know, my, my religious faith and everything. And that was the one thing going through your book that I had to really kind of sift between through, because you're not necessarily talking about things through a religious lens, because as you mentioned, you're not Christian, but it's trying to come to this point where it's like, at what point are acts of resistance 
or acts of defiance reasonable? And at what point is there a real reason to want to cast somebody out when there is a real reason to point the finger at somebody and say, yeah, you're actually causing problems? Yeah, one of the things I want to point out about this book is that I'm not defending disobedience or rebellion per se or nonconformity per se, because there's all types of ways you can not conform to societal norms, which are bad. Like societal norms exist for a reason in a lot of cases, and not conforming to those can be a very dangerous and bad thing. And so I'm not defending those people per se, but what I wanted to point out is the tendency of society to so dislike and so distrust and so reject people who don't conform that they have to identify them with some kind of metaphysical evil. It's not just enough to say they're bad because they're not doing as they're told or they're not doing like the rest of us are doing. They're not only just bad, but they are like, they're the embodiment of evil. They're Satan. They are Satan worshipers. They are witches. They are uh, making pacts with the devil. They're doing all these evil things. And it's all kinds. I mean, it's not even like rebellion of authority. It's anything that stands out. One of the chapters in my book that's my favorite is when I talk about people who demonstrate extraordinary skill or ability and how people have an inherent distrust of that and they don't like it. You have things like, you mentioned Faust earlier. Like Faust is this great medieval story, or I guess kind of, you know, Renaissance story about this uh, scientist who wanted to, or this natural philosopher who wanted to learn more about the world. And in the story, he is condemned to hell for it because he makes a bargain with the devil to try to learn more about the way the world works and learn learn different skills. And you have people like musicians, you know, the great example of that is the violinist Paganini, who was so skilled and dexterous and amazing on the violin, people couldn't believe it. And they thought, well, the only way he could be that good is if he made a deal with the devil. And people started to, you know, fear and distrust him for that reason. And you saw it again with like in modern times with the blues musician, Robert Johnson, who was widely you know, regarded as someone who sold his soul to the devil at a crossroads to learn how to play the guitar because he was such an amazing guitarist. And it's just, I think people have this inherent kind of, dislike of people who stand up above the crowd so much further and people who can do things that no one else can do. It makes people afraid. And so they've kind of, in order to attempt to understand that uh, nonconformity, that standing out, they try to identify these people with some sort of metaphysical evil, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, my, my favorite play of all time is The Crucible by Arthur Miller. It's actually one of my favorite movies. Um, uh, who, who's, who's the guy who plays uh, Proctor? Daniel Day-Lewis, Daniel Day-Lewis, at the end of the, of the film, The Crucible, um, during his uh, It's My Name monologue, uh, I mean, I, I watch that sometimes when I'm looking at something on the news, when I'm hearing something on the radio, in which people are just completely destroying somebody who they most of the time they don't even know much about. They, they jump to conclusion. They're immediately going to go ahead and sentence these people to a hanging. And, and when I think of that, I, I immediately go back and I watch that speech at the end of The Crucible by Daniel Day-Lewis. But um, I, I mean, what 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 and and you discuss the the Salem witch trials in, in your book in a later chapter and i i mean i always think that people they they look at the Salem witch trials for for example and i i always feel like they take the wrong meanings from it like they they look at that and i think arthur miller um he doesn't get enough credit for being a good historian even though he dramatized a lot of the events of the crucible but um you know, it was one of those situations where a lot of people look at the Salem witch trials and they think, oh, that's a case of religion run awry. 
that's a case of religious extremism. And don't get me wrong, that was part of it. But when you get to the part after uh, the local girls are caught, you know, doing voodoo and spells with the with the local slave. I mean, at that point, everyone's just accusing each other of being witches because they all have a gripe to deal with or they all have, you know, a grudge against somebody else. So it goes from the point of, yeah, this may have been something that freaked people out because they think that some of the local daughters are making deals with the devil. But then the Salem witch trials went on for so long and so many people died because they use that as an excuse to get back at people they didn't like. Yeah, it's the whole scapegoating thing, and it's not inherently religious. You're right. It's this idea that I have problems, something is wrong, I need someone to blame. And who are you going to blame in that situation? You're not going to blame you know, the pinnacles of society, the people who are, have a good standing in the community, the people who are like everybody else. You're going to select someone who's kind of defenseless. And so you pick on people who are children, or you pick on people who are like the weird outsider who lives on the edge of town in a shack with a bunch of cats or something. And you say, well, that person is different than me, so they must be evil, and they must be the cause of why the crops haven't grown or why my cow died or whatever it is. Uh, why my husband is sick, and you start to point fingers in that regard. That's just the scapegoating idea, and it always targets the nonconformist. You never get scapegoating against people who are kind of good, well-behaved pinnacles of the community. It just doesn't happen because those people have a defense system built around them in their uh, way that they fit into society. What What was what one of the moments where you were thinking about what you wanted your next book to be? Because you're you're, you're always writing. What made you want to jump over to this topic? Because you started off writing fiction and then you went over and you wrote um, your, your last book, Our, Our Servants, Our Masters. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- this, is, this is within the same realm, but it's different. What, what, was, what was it that made you want to target this subject specifically? It's sort of a synthesis between things that I'm just interested in. I mean, I have a, you know, someone asked me on a different podcast, like how I research my books. And I have a very weird passive like method, method of research. I don't like pick out my idea and then go out trying to search for ways to research it. I just read a lot of stuff that I'm interested in. And over time, I started to notice patterns and I started to notice recurring themes in the things that I'm reading. And when I kind of collect enough material, I think there's a book there. And that's kind of what happened here. I read a lot of books about libertarianism and about people who are different and people who are standing up to authority. And I read a lot of books about, you know, occultism and uh, people who practice magic and people who are witches and things like that. And I just sort of saw this intersection between them where you had this, you know, recurrent persecution of people who were not willing to go along with the crowd, who wanted to do something different. And I've always been interested in like the satanic panic, which is a major theme in my book from the 70s and 80s about how this whole like community of people came together and said, we're afraid of satanic rituals and ritual abuse of children, despite the fact that there's no evidence of any of that. And we're just going to have a witch hunt that we run through society and we're going to target people who listen to heavy metal. And we're going to target people who play Dungeons and Dragons and like all these people who are a little bit weird and a little bit different. And I just found that such a scary phenomenon and it ruins so many lives that, you know, things like that, I just saw recurring over and over again throughout centuries. You see it with the Inquisition in the Middle Ages, and you see it with the witch trials, and you just see it over and over again. And so I thought it would make a good thesis for a book. And it's something that I don't think anyone else has really tackled. Like, there's a lot of material about, um, you know, people being different and being persecuted for it. But I wanted to zero in on this very specific issue of people being identified with evil, identified with Satan worshipers, identified with witches for their nonconformity, which I don't think anyone has written a book about apart from me. So I'm trying to fill a, a niche in the market there, I suppose. Uh, a question that was going through my head as I was going through this was, you know, the, what, what, what makes man do what we do? 
and, and coming from a Christian perspective, and you you, you kind of point out your differences and some of the other views on this in the in the first handful of chapters where you're specifically talking about the Garden of Eden. I would say that you know man is broken because man has fallen from God. And yeah. that through Eve's temptation and then taking it, eating of the apple and then, you know, getting Adam to do it, that that is the price we pay for creating that distance. We are inherently good and we are also inherently bad, but we are born sinful and flawed. And that's why we're so complicated. Um, so when you take that approach and you look at human history, it, it's almost one of those things where as much as we talk about, you know, as a society wanting to be more peaceful, wanting to love each other, wanting to go for the common good. I, you know, we keep seeing examples that, that that's just not the case. So I, I'm wondering from, from your worldview on this, do you believe that man is either inherently good or inherently bad or somewhere in the middle? I don't think it's either. My view, and this kind of comes from my economics training, is that man is inherently self-interested and man responds to incentives. So if the incentives are there to create good behavior, you're going to get good behavior. And if the incentives are there to create bad behavior, you're going to get bad behavior. And I talk about in the first chapter of the book, like it it makes a lot of sense why society is hostile towards nonconformists from an incentive point of view. Going back to the dawn of man, you know, if you were living in very small communities, very small tribes, uh, you were trying to survive, you were trying to outcompete the other tribes, you needed to all work together. And if someone was off doing their own thing and not contributing to the hunt or the hunt or the gathering or the raising of children or whatever, it could endanger your entire tribe. And so it's understandable why those people needed to be punished and why the tribe would come together and try to go after them. Uh, it doesn't really make much sense now that we live in a much more um, individualistic world than we did back then. And my behavior doesn't really affect you in any sense unless I'm directly attacking you or doing something to you. But I think it's a holdover from those primitive days where we're just, we're, it's, we're hardwired into us to want to punish nonconformists in that regard. And I think it's incumbent upon us to try to overcome those instincts and realize, take a more rational view of mankind and say, if you're not hurting me, uh, it's, why do I care if you're doing your own thing? Go ahead and do it. And the other th- point I'd like to make on that is that it requires nonconformists to create progress. If everybody constantly does the same thing, you're just going to be in the same place forever. You're going to repeat the same pattern over and over again. You need someone who thinks differently, who acts differently, who's willing to break the mold, who then comes out and says, no, we're going to try something new. We're going to do something different. And that's how you get technological breakthroughs. It's how you get social and cultural breakthroughs. It's how you get artistic breakthroughs. Uh, You have to have those people. But it's totally understandable from like an evolutionary standpoint why there's an inherent hostility by society against the nonconformists. Yeah, I mean, I, I always go back to Vincent Van Gogh as being, you know, really, really a tragic example of that. Uh, I don't think many people know how Van Gogh died. Basically, he was jumped after going out to the fields one day and painting on his canvas. And um, it, it's not it, it's not known whether they intended to shoot him or they accidentally shot him during a tussle. But basically, he, he died of a gunshot wound after several days of suffering. And uh, that wasn't the first time Van Gogh had been violently assaulted. He had been violently assaulted on numerous occasions. And it it came from children. It came from other, you know, adults like himself. It it, it always shocked me that it's like, why would you, why why would you be so disturbed by somebody's presence that you would immediately leap to violence? And in in the section regarding satanic panic, it's, it's ironic. I've actually done a lot of research and studies into that. Because uh, for my TV show, The Witching Hour, 
we've been to a lot of locations where, uh, you know, occult rituals and primarily uh, Luciferian rituals and sacrifices have taken place, including Santeria and stuff like that, you know, cutting off chicken's heads. But, you know, for some of the locations, I mean, um, a lot of those, you know, practices and, you know, the evidence found at certain places, a lot of that goes back uh, to the late 70s, early 80s, when the satanic panic was really a, a big thing. And, um, you know, that's where a lot of a lot of the evidence gets kind of skewered because you can't tell whether or not you're dealing with something that actually happened or if you're dealing with just local legend and lore. But the the biggest thing that I found was that, especially when you talk to a lot of locals and stuff like that, it rarely has to do with, oh, this person, this kid, this these these kids over there actually wanted to like summon the devil and do stuff. It was the fact that, you know, they they found each other because they like a certain type of music and a certain type of pop culture. And they were doing this stuff to kind of test each other, see who was really in it. So in any in any way, it was a form of social cohesion for the outcasts to find each other and to see who was really into this stuff. And then you get to the parents. And the one thing I figured out about the parents wasn't necessarily the fact that they really thought their kids were communing with the devil. Well, some may have. But it came to the fact that these parents were so, you know, were, were so disturbed and so angry because they felt their children were outright rejecting the way they were raised and the parents themselves felt like disappointments. And when you're dealing with something like that and you're coming at this from a point of sadness and anger, I mean, no, no one's going to act rationally during that. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is such just a tragedy that was so needless. I mean, there's all these examples of people who were running nursery schools or kindergartens or things like that, daycare centers, who got hauled into court and accused of molesting children and holding, sacrificing children and holding rituals with them. No evidence for it whatsoever. Completely made up, trumped up charges. They got psychiatrists to like manipulate the children and try to talk them into agreeing to these things that never happened. And people went away. People went to jail for decades. And some people got pardoned and got out eventually, but that doesn't make up for it. And it's just, it's shocking when you look into how many lives are ruined by this type of thing. So that's not even going back to, you know, the Middle Ages when people were actually being executed for heresy and things like that. Yeah, it's it, it's modern. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you think you could have written this book like maybe five, six, seven years ago? And do you think it would still have the same impact? Because it, it was hard for me to read this and not pull up so many modern examples, especially over the last few years. And I don't want yeah. to make it. I don't want to make it about Orange Man, but I mean, you saw a lot of examples on the left and the right, and everyone in between, where you know, over the last couple of years, I, I mean, things have just gotten to the point where you, to to not even have a stance on something is to insinuate the opposite stance of the person you're talking to, because everyone yeah. wants you to immediately give you the answer they want to hear. It's interesting because I wrote this book in 2019 and it was before the coronavirus pandemic. And, uh, you know, you don't see that many modern examples, I think, because of, of specifically what I'm talking about, because not that many people publicly talk about demons and devil worship anymore. It's just not something that people really believe in as much anymore or talk about. But it really is apropos, I think, of the coronavirus pandemic, where you see this just incredible pressure to conform uh, for things like medical decisions and things like that. One of my chapters in the book is about medical conformity and about kind of mental illness and the idea that if you're behaving or you exhibit a symptom that is strange and, and confusing to people, they're were likely to attribute it to some kind of supernatural evil cause. 
Um, and I, I don't see so much the supernatural thing now, but you definitely see this like blaming of the victim. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, wouldn't you say it's, so? It's really apropos for that, even though I wrote it before any of this started to happen. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you say it's just you know just a cultural evolution though? Because even though the words might change and the accusations might not be as specific as that person's possessed by the devil, the the way that we're targeting people, the way that we're otherizing people in order to basically make them out to be anything but a functional human member of society, it, it's it's still the same. We're just yeah, using it's different the same things. pattern. It's just with a different scapegoat, essentially. Yeah. Um, what, what were some of the things that you learned specifically about this? Because obviously you were already thinking, you know, where you wanted to go with this, with this book, but what were some of the things that you discovered along the way that, you know, can't came as a surprise to you? I think the most interesting thing for me was in that medical chapter about kind of some of the hypothesized origins of myths involving the vampires and werewolves and things like that. Um, there's all this literature on these kind of obscure medical conditions that, have a variety of symptoms that when you list them all in a row, it's kind of easy to see how someone might, you know, come up with the idea of a vampire or a werewolf from them. For example, there's a disease called porphyria. And some of these symptoms of porphyria are sensitivity to light, uh, reddening around the teeth and gums, sallow yellow skin, uh, excessive hairiness or hirsuteness. Um, and so, like, you can think about people who have you know, sensitivity to light prowling around at night because they can't go out during the day. They're hairy. They have red around their mouth, which looks like they've been eating blood or something. You know, you can see how these kind of myths might have sprung up. And there's all kinds of examples of that. And that's something I hadn't really ever considered or thought about before. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of terrifying to think that someone with a horrible disease is not only having to suffer that, but then having to suffer the social stigma of someone thinking that they're a monster from beyond the grave. Yeah, uh, when when reading that part, it actually reminded me of um, the werewolf. It was a book written by Ed and Lorraine Warren, based off one of their uh, cases in England. And you know, basically, there was that. There, I think the term is lycanthropy. It was basically the ability for man to morph into another creature, more often than not, either a bat or a werewolf. And, um, you know, the, the gentleman in this case suffered from, you know, one of those diseases that you mentioned where basically his, his face was full of hair. He looked like a, a werewolf. And, um, because of this actually caused him to, um, you know, de develop, it wasn't schizophrenia, but it was some, it was some kind of split personality disorder. And, and it came mostly through abuse because it happened around the time that he hit puberty. And I think that his father actually treated him like a dog. Like he actually would make him walk on all fours and he would make him sleep outside and eat out of a bowl. So a lot of his mental trauma occurred through abuse directly. But um, what, what bothered me was, and I really like the Conjuring films, and I, I, I'm not exaggerating. If you want to see examples of, I, I, I use this term very loosely, realistic hauntings, demonic possession, the things that I've you know, spoken about and the things I've documented on my TV series, the, the Conjuring is probably as close as it gets to accuracy in cinema. They take a lot of liberties in those films, like a ton of liberties, but you know, that it's probably, I, I could point to a couple of things and be like, yeah, that's within the realm of possibility. But in a, in the one conjuring universe film, Annabelle comes home, they actually show a actual werewolf in that film. And that, that really, that, that bugged the shit out of me because what that actually really did do was that really made light out of 
somebody's real trauma and something they had because they made it out to be like, you know, a regular, you know, universal monster type of werewolf. And it's like, no, that was a human being who was suffering and who was heavily abused. And because of that, his community was terrified of him. And the Warrens do, you know, do, do talk about that in that book. They're like, this man was not like transforming into, you know, a, a werewolf or anything like that. But it's those circumstances where, you know, if, if we were if we were in a time long ago, you go ahead and say that once and that immediately becomes truth. And, yeah. and even in their Internet age, I, I can't say that we're remarkably better at that. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, and, you know, these kind of memification of facts has really been a problem where you hear something that just gets I'm spread stealing that term. The yeah. Memification of, of facts. facts. I don't know that I made that up. But <laughs> named to me just now. So feel free to have it. I'm stealing that. Yeah, but uh, I, I mean, it's it, it's it's when I see things like that. Now that that's a real offhand example, but um, I, I mean, it's uh, it, it's just one of those things where it's like I, I don't I don't see us ever getting better. I see this as an inherent human condition where we're, we're gonna find ways to continue to do this until the end of time. I'm perhaps slightly more optimistic than you about that because I think we have made a lot of progress. I mean, we don't have nearly as much kind of widespread killing over these things as we used to. Um, I'm a big fan of like the psychologist Steven Pinker who writes a lot about human progress and how much things have gotten better over time and how much less violence there is and things like that, how much less prejudice there is. So I think that things will improve eventually or have the potential to improve anyway. We just have to be aware of these things and point out the harm that it causes. Like one of the points that I make in the book that I think is really important is if you consistently demonize someone and you consistently say you're evil, you're bad, you're wicked, you're someone who I don't want to be around, eventually they're just going to embrace it. You know, and I think we're seeing this a lot with like the alt-right where people say, you're a deplorable, you're a deplorable, you're a deplorable. And they're like, okay, well, I guess I might as well be a deplorable because you're going to say that no matter what I do. So I might as well go ahead and do horrible things. And I think that there's a real danger of when you systematically other people, they start feeling like the other and they start thinking there's no point in trying to get along with other people and they start just becoming, you know, very destructive individuals. Um, so that's a consequence of this kind of behavior that I think we need to be aware of. That's why people need to read my book and, you know, be on guard against these sort of things, not let them happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you know, touching on that though, like, do, do you really believe that when it comes to man's outcome, do you think it's really nurture versus nature? Oh, it's a mix. I mean, it's unquestionably a mix, right? There's a lot of human nature that is just built into us and hardwired into us through millions of years of our existence. And there's a lot of it that has to do with how we're raised. And I, I think it's anyone who says it's all nature or all nurture, I think is crazy because it's clearly a mixture of both. Yeah. I mean, something that, and, and, and you didn't, you didn't discuss it in your book. I, I'm not saying you should have, but like this one memory that came up to me as I finished it was um, I, I took a I took a gen ed psychology class in in college because I needed an elective, and the one thing I really took out of it was the Stanford Prison Experiment, yeah. Where uh, Doctor uh, Philip Zimbardo basically grabbed a dozen undergrads and he made half of them, and they all chose their roles at random. So basically, what they did in, in, at Stanford was they created a mock prison in the psychology department, and they had all twelve. Uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was about a dozen volunteers basically pull a name out of a hat and that name either, I'm sorry, the word either said prisoner or guard and it was all random. So half of them were prisoners, half of them were guards. And, you know, the, the experiment was cut off after a couple of days 
because the guards just went mad of power and they started, you know, spreading rumors of conspiracy amongst the prisoners. And, you know, the prisoners are guys are like, guys, this is just an experiment. And, and the guards began beating people. I mean, it, it got really, really bad. And what was really disturbing about it was Zimbardo, instead of stopping it, his fiance at the time had to stop it because he's like, look, the, someone, someone's going to get killed. Like this yeah, is, this I'm, is I'm familiar bad. with those experiments and it's like, I think it's a great uh, cautionary tale about how p- quick people are to kind of assume the role that's expected of them, you know, how to fit into that place where they're like, oh, I have to get along with everybody else. If I'm a prisoner, I have to be like all the other prisoners. If I'm a guard, I have to be like all the other guards and I have to act out that role, even if it's not really what I want to do. I think that shows you how adaptable we are and how, um, how quick we are to kind of conform to these expectations. That's one of the things that I found a really double-edged sword about this whole coronavirus thing is like human beings are just so incredibly adaptable and it's our great strength. Like we're not that strong. We're not that fast. Um, we don't have any armor or, or poison or anything, but like we can adapt so quickly to a new situation. It's made us very good competitive in the natural world. But one of the downsides of that is that we can tolerate situations that should be intolerable. And I've seen people just, you know, accept things that I never thought that people would accept. And during this whole lockdown business, and I was like, I can't believe people are going along with this, but we're just so adaptable. We just get used to it immediately. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine now. We'll do that. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that, and I'm surprised I hadn't blocked him sooner, but I saw somebody retweet something from Bill Crystal, And Bill Crystal is like, you know, the unvaccinated in 2021 officially have blood on their hands. And it's like, when, when I read that, you know, like that, that's not even the worst thing I've seen on Twitter. But oh, it's no, like, yeah, but it's like, you know, words have meaning and accusations have meaning. And what he's saying there is is just so wrong in so many ways. And, and, you know, it's like even, even last year during the riots, everything, it was like, well, silence is violence. And it's like that, you know, it's, it's like revenge of the Sith. It's like only Sith's deal in absolutes. (laughs) It's it's just one of those situations where it, it, it just, you know, it's like that saying history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes it's it's a lot like this. And I mean, it's this otherizing. When I started hearing the Biden administration refer to some people as the unvaxxed or the unvaccinated, it's like what, what you're doing is you're creating a scapegoat group. Yeah. And it's so scary that people are not like studying history anymore very much. And people aren't knowing these stories because like I, I saw a thing earlier today about how uh, a friend of mine posted a clip of Mel Brooks making fun of Hitler on, on TikTok and it got pulled down because you're not allowed to say Hitler on TikTok. And it's like, well, we pretty, it's pretty important that we remember who Hitler was and that what he did, like, we don't want to forget that. And I feel like people want to forget the past now. And like, you know, I'm thinking about the concentration camps that we operated during World War II that, you know, we put Asian Americans into during World War II because they were perceived as a threat and we were scapegoating them for the war. And it's like, that could easily happen again if we're not careful. And we need to know about those things. And I think it's really dangerous that people just want to forget everything bad in our, ha- in our past because it might be triggering or it might be upsetting to hear about. We, we need to hear about those upsetting things in our past so we don't make the same mistake again. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I always go back to the crucible because over the past year and a half, I've probably you know thought of quotes or moments from that book, play, movie, that, that story more often than, than ever before. And I mean, for me, it always goes back to Proctor. It's like, you've taken everything from me. You're about to take my life. At least let me have my name. And it's when we we put these labels on people. It's when we remove the ounce of humanity that they have, and we apply these new names to them, especially when they're not, you know, they're not deserving of them. Uh, that that's it, it. It gets to the point where it's like, you know, this 
this is something that at least for me, it points out this constant need for people to try and not ignore that spiritual side of them that shows, you know, you're broken, you're flawed. It's not that you're willingly choosing this it's just that as part of your nature, but when you identify it, you have to make that firm choice to fight against it. At, at least from my view. And, um, you know, I, I, I did, you know, really, really enjoy your book folks. I'm going to write, uh, some further thoughts about this on Substack uh, today when you listen to this. So you can go ahead and maybe you've already gotten it. Remso.substack.com. That's remso.substack.com. I'm going to apply some, uh, some additional thoughts on this book. Uh, Logan, I've read a good chunk of your stuff. I've got to say that this was definitely, um, your most creative think piece that you've ever done. I really did enjoy it. I've got highlights and notes and stuff. And, uh, you know, I definitely think that everybody should get it. So if they want to go ahead and pick up a copy, when and how can they do so? Uh, I think it should be out as of the airing of this video. It's coming out December 1st, and I don't know when this is coming, or this podcast. Uh, whenever this comes out, it should be available. You can get it on Amazon.com, Conform or Be Cast Out, The Literal Demonization of Nonconformist by me, Logan Albright. You can also go to my website, loganalbright.com, and find links to it there and all the other projects that I'm involved in. Uh, thanks so much for your kind words, Rimzo, and thanks for having me on your show. Oh, absolutely. Anytime, Logan. Folks, I hope you appreciated uh, all the knowledge that we, you know, go ahead and throw out on the show. You know, I'm, I'm a C average American, but we should never stop having these conversations, asking these questions and continuing to try and just, you know, promoting open dialogue amongst each other, whether you're religious or not, whether you're on one side of the spectrum or not, or just people trying to figure shit out amongst each other during our time on earth. As always, if you appreciate this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review across Al Gore's amazing internet, wherever you listen to podcasts such as this. I'm Ramsey W. Martinez. Be safe, be good. Good night. Good night.